If you would now, open up with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, let me say a word of welcome to our guests this morning. Uh, we're very grateful to have you here and want you to know that you are welcome here anytime. Uh, we love having visitors with us. Also, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, be sure to, uh, to use one of those provided in the seats in front of you. And uh, you'll find our passage this morning in those Bibles on page 61. I have a question for you. Would you ever kill someone? Have you ever considered killing someone? That might sound like a strange question. Not one very appropriate for polite company. But in 2011, a team of psychologists surveyed 5,000 adults and found that 91% of men and 84% of women admitted to having at least one homicidal fantasy. At least once in their lives, someone had made them so angry or frustrated them so much that they actually considered how they might kill that person. Nine out of ten men More than 8 out of 10 women. What does that tell you about us? What does that tell you about the human race? Is not violence bound up in the heart of man? Doesn't the Bible tell us that man's feet are swift to shed blood? You might think, no, not us. Our feet aren't swift to shed blood. But friends, don't discount the grace that God has given us in our modern society with fairly strict laws and functioning systems of authorities. Imagine what happens when human beings with these homicidal tendencies are in a society where there are fewer authorities, less civil accountability, And it's much easier to get away with violence. There is a reason that Solomon warns his son over and over again in the book of Proverbs not to join with those who are quick to lie in wait to shed blood. The truth is, it was pretty easy in that ancient context to go out to some trade route and just wait for a traveler to come by. And if you didn't value that person's life, how easy it would be to end their life with a rock or with a sword and their possessions would be yours. And so Solomon says in Proverbs 1, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. 
91% of men, 84% of women. Throughout the Proverbs, Solomon is concerned that his son might give way to violence. Uh, Proverbs 3, 29 to 31, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. And do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. We're currently in a study of the Ten Commandments. And this morning we come to verse 13 and the Sixth Commandment. You probably already know what it says. Here is God's command. You shall not murder. Now wait a minute. Did you know that's what it says? Were you aware of that? Because some people have the wrong idea. Some people think the Sixth Commandment says you shall not kill. And there is a difference, and that's not what it says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that there actually is a time to kill. That is, there is a time when it is morally right to bring about the death of someone else. Maybe in self-defense. Maybe in the context of a righteous war. Uh, We can talk about the death penalty. We maybe will address that tonight. The Sixth Commandment does not say you shall not kill. The Sixth Commandment says you shall not murder. Now, your Bible may have a helpful little footnote on this commandment. Uh, In the ESV that I'm reading from, that footnote helps us to understand that this word murder doesn't just mean actively and intentionally causing the death of someone but also includes acts of carelessness and negligence that lead to someone's death. So maybe you'll remember some weeks ago when we talked about the law that God gave to Israel instructing every Israelite to install railings on their roofs. Uh, The the roofs of the Israelites were flat, uh, and people did a lot of living on their roofs. The roofs were used for for dining and often for sleeping. And so because so many people uh, lived and, and, and spent time up on their roofs, God instituted this law. Every Israelite household was to have railings on their roofs. If an Israelite failed to do that, and someone fell off their roof and died that homeowner would have been guilty of the Sixth Commandment. That act of carelessness, that act of negligence, falls within this word of murder. You shall not murder. Now we're going to unpack this commandment this morning and as well as tonight, and we'll answer questions on Wednesday nights. But remember, one of the best ways for us to soak up and to savor the teaching of the Bible is for us to look at a verse and to ask that verse questions. And if the verse doesn't give us our answer, we look to the context and we look to the rest of the Bible to give us answers. This is how your theology grows, your understanding of God grows. This is how you mature as a Christian. You don't just read the Bible, you interact with the Bible, you engage with the Bible, you seek to make sense of it. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to ask some questions of this sixth commandment. And here's the first one. What is God setting apart for honor in this commandment? 
In every commandment, God is revealing something that he values and he is revealing something that we ought to value, something we dare not treat lightly, something we dare not demean. What is being set apart for honor in the sixth commandment? Human life. Human life. As Christians, we often speak of the sanctity of life. I bet you've heard that phrase before. The sanctity of human life. That phrase means that human life is holy. That's what sanctity is. It's sacred. That human life is worthy of being set apart in our minds and in our hearts as something special, something distinct. There is a God-given dignity to human life that surpasses even the dignity of other living things in this world. Why do we as human beings have special dignity? Well, it boils down to one key answer. It's because we bear the image of God. In Genesis 1, after God had created every other part of His creation, God saved His most important and most impressive work for last. He created man, male and female, in his image. He had spent six days exercising his wisdom and his knowledge and his power as he was creating the world. Now he made a creature who would imitate him in exercising those same attributes. God's wisdom, God's power, God's knowledge, they're infinite. Ours is not. We have finite wisdom, we have finite power, we have finite knowledge. But what God does on a macro scale in the universe, we do as human beings in a micro scale in this world. In our lives as human beings, we are living, breathing, walking expressions of the attributes of God himself. We are image bearers of God in a way that no other creature on earth is. Our dignity, our worth, our value, it's not intrinsic to us. It's based on the dignity of God himself. Human life is sacred because God is sacred. Human life is sacred because God is worthy of honor. The sixth commandment rests on the first commandment. It is because God is worthy of honor that those created in the image of God must be treated with care. There's another way to think about this. It kind of amounts to the same thing. All life is precious. Plant life is precious. Animal life is precious. We ought to treat plants and animals with care. And the more a living thing is similar to a human, the closer it is to having the attributes of a human that is closer to having the attributes of God, the more care that living thing deserves. But at the end of the day, God did give to human beings the right to kill plants and animals. We shouldn't do so without warrant. We should only do so for good purposes Uh, We ought not to find joy in animal pain. We should not needlessly prolong animal pain. But God has given man dominion over the earth. That's Genesis 2. And he has given man the right, when it's required, to kill plants and animals. God has not given man dominion over his fellow man. That is, your next door neighbor is outside of your dominion unless God has placed you in a position of civil authority. 
right? If you're a normal citizen, you do not have dominion over them the way you do plants or animals. And therefore, God makes clear in the sixth commandment, you do not have the right to kill human life. It's a murder. Fellow image bearers of God are outside of your dominion. Only God and civil authorities appointed by God ever have the right to take human life. Now, if the sanctity of human life is connected to God's dignity because we are image bearers of Him, what do you think happens in a society when people start to think less of God? We should not be surprised that in a culture, when people begin to have lower thoughts of God, the result is that they have lower thoughts of fellow human beings created in the image of God. The devaluing of God and the devaluing of human life go hand in hand. They are inextricably connected. And isn't it interesting that as soon as you have the fall of man in Genesis 3, sin against God, you have the very first homicide in Genesis 4. The devaluing of God in Genesis 3, the rejection of God in Genesis 3, leads to the very first murder in Genesis 4. And as you keep reading, you go further down in Genesis 4, there's more murder. You get to Genesis 6, and we're told that the whole earth was filled with violence. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will also love your neighbor. Because your neighbor bears the image of the God that you love with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you despise God, if you forsake God, if you reject God, if you hate God, guess what that does to the way you see your neighbor? This is important for us to understand. The greatest way to bring real reform to a society so that murder and violence decreases is to help that society embrace the gospel and be reconciled to God. When revival comes to a people and people fall in love with God, love for neighbor and a high view of the sanctity of life is the result. Second question. Second question. How have we broken the sixth commandment? How have we in this room broken the sixth commandment. There are numerous ways a person can be guilty of murder. There's, there's murder itself, the willful taking of another person's life. There's murder, as we've seen, through negligence, through neglect. There's self-murder, which is suicide. There's euthanasia and assisted suicide. We'll speak about things like abortion and things like that a little bit later. But I want us to focus on one key way that every single one of us have broken this commandment. It's heart murder. It's having sinful anger against someone in your heart. Sinful anger against someone in your heart. You see, central to the teaching of our Savior was this truth. That sin begins in the heart. Outward acts of violence don't come out of nowhere. They spring from what begins inside of us. Two quotes from Matthew's gospel. First, Matthew 12, beginning verse 34, Jesus speaking very strongly. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. 
The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then Matthew 15, Jesus says, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Listen carefully. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Out of the heart come these things. Out of the heart comes murder. These are what defile a person. We live in a culture that tries to excuse every sinful action by looking at factors outside of ourselves. The devil made me do it. My circumstances made me do it. My parents mistreated me as a child. The culture is against me. We want to blame anyone and everyone but ourselves for our sins. And yet Jesus is clear. Sin proceeds from the heart. And this is why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. True love for God is the ultimate answer to every temptation. If we love God with our hearts, then we will put away these sins. They will not find room in us. Let me ask you to lay your eyes on a passage of Scripture where Jesus applies the sixth commandment to us. So look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon in which Jesus showed how the religious leaders of his day were misusing God's law. The scribes and the Pharisees kept the letter of the law, but they failed to grasp its real meaning. They failed to live out its spirit. The Pharisees concentrated on outward actions, but they failed to get to the root of the matter. And the root of the matter was the heart. And this failure was the fatal flaw that plagued the Pharisees' interpretation of Scripture and their exposition of it in the local synagogues. Calvin says, by confining the law of God to outward duties only, the Pharisees trained their disciples like apes to hypocrisy. Real holiness is not outward action first. Real holiness begins in the heart, and then the fruit shows itself in outward action. So when Jesus says over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, he's referring to what the people had heard in the synagogues. There was no printing press. The people didn't have Bibles in their homes. What people knew about God, what people knew about God's truth was what they heard from the Pharisees in their synagogues. Jesus is going to say to them, this is what you've heard. And then he's going to take what the people have heard and he's going to bring it to bear on the human heart. He deepens the commands of God. He helps listeners to see that the law is meant to, inf- to affect them internally. And that's what he does with the six commandments. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Mount Hermon, 
there are murderers among us this morning. You are sitting among murderers. We are murderers. There is not an innocent man or an innocent woman in this room. Because Jesus says murder begins in the heart when you hate a fellow human being. When there is sinful anger inside of you. That hatred may boil over to the extent that you actually murder somebody. That's certainly sin. But what about when you hate somebody, but you've learned to keep it inside? You've learned to restrain yourself. You don't act on the hatred. What if I hate somebody, but I don't express it at all? I just feel it. Or what if, what if I, don't, I don't act out, but I just insult them? Jesus says all of that is still sin. It's still wicked. It's still, it's still lashing out against someone who bears the image of God. Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, you're in danger of hell. We say, wait a minute, Jesus. I thought hell was for the really bad people, the murderers. <laughs> Jesus says, you're right, it is for the murderers. And that's who we are in our hearts. It's as much for those who murder inwardly as it is for those who murder outwardly. Jesus is explaining to us that hating someone is really bad. If you have hatred in your heart towards someone this morning, and you refuse to lay that hatred down, Jesus says you will go to hell. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And that's strong. And that's terrifying. Because we all have hearts that are prone towards hate. We all have souls that are prone to despise people around us. Only the Spirit of God can change a person so that our hearts love instead of hate. True believers are to be marked by love. True believers are to live a life of repenting of hateful thoughts, putting away hateful thoughts, putting away hateful actions and attitudes. We are to grow in love. We are to cultivate love. What is the chief fruit of the Spirit? It is love. What is the supreme mark by which Jesus said His disciples would be known? It is love. 1 John 2, 9-11, whoever says he is in the light, I'm in the light. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. You've probably heard people use the expression blind rage. Anger and hatred have a way of blinding us to reality. Anger and hatred have a way of making us do foolish things, stupid things, wrong things that we later regret. In the verse I just quoted, the darkness refers to the darkness of a life without knowing Jesus. You cannot know Jesus savingly and still hate people. Hatred drives love and faith towards Jesus right out of your soul. Hatred is a darkness that tries to squash the light of faith in you. If you're to be full of Christ, you must be empty of hatred. 
And so John goes on to say, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So murder is rooted in hatred, and hatred is a matter of the heart. Jesus said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger, anger is an emotion. It's a feeling of hatred towards someone or at least towards something that that someone has done. It's not always expressed in violence. 90-year-old ladies who have never raised a fist in their lives can be filled with sinful anger towards someone. Do you know that? There can be a murderous spirit in a person who has never outwardly committed an act of violence in their lives. Anger can be found in the heart that refuses to forgive, the heart that declines to reconcile, the heart that holds a grudge. And so as I apply the sixth commandment to us this morning, I'm simply asking you, are you a murderer in heart, even here this morning? Is there anyone in your life whom you are refusing to love, refusing to forgive, refusing to be reconciled with? Is there anyone who, frankly, you wish wasn't alive? Is there anyone who, when their name is mentioned to you by others, their name just riles you up? You picture their face and feelings of bitterness and anger arise in your soul. If that's you, put it away. You're breaking the sixth commandment. You must learn to show forgiveness and love as your God has forgiven and loved you. You say, Justin, isn't there a kind of anger that is good? Isn't there such a thing as righteous anger? Absolutely. Anger towards sin is good. God is pure and holy, and yet the Bible tells us again and again about God's anger towards sin. Jesus had righteous anger when he overthrew the tables in the temple, when he chased out the money changers with a whip. But the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger is this. Righteous anger is aroused by God being dishonored. Unrighteous anger is aroused by me being offended. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was spit on. Jesus was put on the cross. He was given the greatest offense any man has ever experienced. And was he angry at the people? No, he had compassion on the people. Even as they are putting him on the cross, he is crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The only time we ever see Jesus getting angry, it's not about himself. It's when he sees his father being dishonored. It's when he sees his father's name being trampled in the dust. Consider the example of Paul. Do you ever see Paul angry at the people who beat him and put him in prison? You never do. The only time you see Paul get really angry is when he believes the gospel of God is being twisted and corrupted, as in the book of Galatians. Now, Herman, let us learn from this. We are not to be angry about our own suffering. 
Have you been lied to? Have you been fired from your job? Has your name been slandered? Have people close to you mistreated you? That is all bad. But you know what? It's not hell. And that's what we deserve. And in fact, if you're a Christian, every trial, every persecution, every wrongdoing that has been done to you in your life, God is using for your good. Even your offenses are ultimately going to be grace and are going to lead to greater happiness for you in heaven. So don't indulge in self-pity. We're so prone to indulge in self-pity. We're so prone to indulge in self-centered angry. If you're going to get angry, get angry about the things that are truly worthy of your anger. Things like child abuse. Things like billions in this world who are spiritually blind and need the gospel while rich American Christians spend all their money on trips to Disneyland. If you want to get angry, get angry about those who claim to be preachers of God's word and then distort the gospel into some prosperity, health, and wealth gospel that that preach a false message. When God is dishonored, that's worth getting angry about. We ought to have a God-centered anger, but not an unrighteous anger that's about us. We're taken care of. If we're Christians, the blood of Jesus has us covered. We're okay whatever tomorrow brings. This life is but a vapor, and we know what's coming for us. We're okay. There is a warning that's in order here. Even righteous anger can become evil if it remains unchecked. Jesus chased people out of the temple with a whip, but he didn't take a sword and cut off their heads. He knew to be angry for a moment, but he didn't dwell in that righteous anger. He knew to be angry to a degree, but he knew where that, even that righteous anger must stop. Ultimately, as Christians, our lives are not to be first and foremost characterized by anger. They are to be characterized by love. Love is the chief note of our song. Our song might hit a minor key now and then as we see God dishonored, but it comes back up into major key, into joy. Love is to be the tenor of our lives. Jesus says here in Matthew, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I remember when I was a kid, I used to think there was something particularly evil about saying you fool, as if Jesus was just setting apart those two words, right? You can say anything else, just don't say you fool. That's, that's not actually what he's doing there. We know that because God himself is going to refer to people as foolish in the Bible. What Jesus is getting at here is that there is such a thing as murderous speech. Uh, by referring to the council... Jesus is drawing a contrast between God's judgment and the judgment of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was 70 members of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they would pronounce judgment on an issue. They could go so far as to pronounce death on somebody by stoning. Jesus himself would later be tried before the Sanhedrin. But Jesus is saying that while the Sanhedrin will only hold you accountable for murder, God's heavenly counsel will hold you accountable for the hateful words that you speak. Murder with your mouth. 
in our land, there is freedom of speech. And in most cases, our courts are not going to condemn you for your words. But you will not be able to plead freedom of speech before the kingdom of heaven. Not when the person that you have spoken hatefully about bears the image of the very God who brings the judgment. When Jesus talks about saying, you fool, he's not saying that that word fool, raka in the Greek, he's not saying that that's an inherently evil word. But in Jesus' day, that word was being used as a form of awful profanity. It was a way of really hurting someone. It was, it was a way of calling somebody stupid and godless. It was, it was a way of speaking hatefully about someone or to someone. The point Jesus is making is that we are not to say hateful things about other people. That you are not to say hateful things about your family members, your friends, your co-workers. We're not to say hateful things about our political leaders or our political opponents. We're not even to say hateful things about the players on the sports team that we dislike. We're not to say hateful things about people. Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. By your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And of course you know the instruction that Jesus gave. If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. God says, how can you come to worship me while you're harboring hatred in your soul against one who bears my image? The apostle James would later say the same thing. He says, with our tongues we bless God and then we curse someone who bears his image. It's hypocrisy in the highest order. Frankly, God does not want our worship in this place on Sunday mornings if we're not willing to put away our hatred and love instead. Worshiping God by loving others, even when it is hard, is far more important than singing our songs or praying our prayers or hearing these sermons. Isaiah 1, Amos 5, God says to Israel, put away your sacrifices. I hate your sacrifices. I don't want your sacrifices. Israel says, but God, you told us to do this. He said, yeah, and they would be good. Except that when you're not sacrificing here, you're abusing one another out there. You're mistreating your workers. You're treating each other with hostility and hatred. And he says, if you're not going to worship me there, this doesn't matter. God won't have hypocritical worship from us either. If you're here this morning with a smile on your face, singing praises to God and honoring God with your lips, but you are harboring hatred towards someone in your heart, all you are doing is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Because there is no salvation for those who won't repent. The cross does nothing for the person who will not turn from their sin. You must put your hatred away. You must run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Justin, you don't understand how badly this person hurt me. If you knew my story, you would understand how I can't help but hate this person. Friend, you're right. I, I don't know 
how badly that person hurt you. But however wicked that person might have been to you, don't you see that ultimately the two of you are the same? Because you were both created in the image of God. And you've both rebelled against God. And you both share in the same depravity. And your sins against God are far more heinous and vile than any sin they could ever commit against you. And yet, dear Christian, you have found mercy in Jesus Christ. The power of sin over you has been broken. Your sins are being overcome by Jesus' blood. There will be a day when you will be in heaven. Having received such amazing grace and mercy from God, how can you not show mercy and grace to others? Whatever they do to you. Don't you want to point them to the same love that you have found? We're at the end of the sermon, I promise. Uh, I'll just give you a sentence for the last question. How did Jesus fulfill the sixth commandment for us? He perfectly loved every human being and was willing to give up his own life for sinners. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, that perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still rebels against God, enemies against God, we hated God, we wanted to pursue sin, we wanted to elevate ourselves, we were, we were committing the most vile and heinous of sins, we were terrible, is the Bible's assessment of us. And when we were in that wretched state, Christ died for us. Has anyone ever loved you so much? Marvel at the love of Jesus for you. Live in the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus for you and then let His love cast out all hatred in your heart towards others that we may be pure and holy in the sight of God. And that our lives will bring glory to his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.